Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hi, this is Dan. Get ready. We're going to have an exciting 48 minutes today going through some uh, extraordinarily interesting questions. You know, I'm amazed every week as I open the file with all your questions coming in about real-life situations. Again, situations I could not dream up. Trust me, these are real questions. I couldn't think up some of the situations that you all propose, but they're just challenging things that we all encounter. We're going to spend the next 48 minutes going through questions, unpack some solutions that'll help us all move to higher levels of success and help us, in fact, find or create work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Now, I'm going to start by just... um, Kind of, I'm going to make the theme today. How can you protect yourself from failure? Okay, I'll tell you why here in a little bit with a quotation. But here's some of the questions we're going to be looking at. How about this for a toughie to start out? Does God just allow some people in life to always be in a place of demise and little hope? All right, we're going to park on that one a little bit. It, it, it's an underlying theme and a lot of questions that I encounter. Here's another one. Is it greedy to ask for donations to adopt a child from Africa? Dan, do you have any hot tips for me to market my book? Dan, how can I get better at selling cars? Dan, I'm a lawyer and want to leave. Should I go now and get started or be safe and wait for my bonus? Well, we'll have fun digging into some of those and more. Here's our quotation for the day. It comes from Seth Godin who says, If you don't start... You can't fail. Now, that's how you protect yourself from failure. If you don't start, you can't fail. However, when you think about it, as Seth goes on to unpack in one of his blogs, it's pretty ridiculous. If you don't start, you won't fail, but you will fail. If you don't start, you'll fail. It's a ridiculous saying. Sometimes people think that they are protecting themselves from failure by not risking, by not starting. But in fact, what they're doing is guaranteeing their failure. Because if you don't start something, you just won't accomplish anything of any meaning and value. And you look back in your life, you'll think that you failed because in fact you did. Well, let me, let me jump right into this one question. I know I usually, you know, put in some success stories here. We got lots of this, but I want to jump right into this one question. Now, I'm not even going to share the gentleman's name. It's not important. But he says, Dan, I'm currently going through the 48 days challenge. We've got this process where guy, a couple of weeks ago, we started people in the 48 days challenge where they're walking through day by day, the steps that I outline, we're going to have a celebration call September 4th, the evening of September 4th, where we're going to hear success stories. Well, this gentleman is in that group. He says, it's a very slow process for me, but I'm inching along. You commented recently about a situation in which a person asked you how to get rid of their hopes and dreams, how to make them go away. I'm in a similar boat. I've been to years of therapy to deal with my life. I take meds. 
I slowly read a variety of self-help type books to give me some sense of direction. I've worked hard all my life, yet I seem to just fail. My two huge childhood dreams were to fly helicopters or play drums in a Christian band, both of which went nowhere. I felt for some time that God wanted me in ministry, but that doesn't hasn't amounted to anything either. Ministry is not a dream or a goal. It's not something that gets my heart pumping when I think about where I want to be in life. It's just a spiritual thing. And here's his question. Does God just allow some people in life to always be in a place of demise and little hope? I just don't get it. Okay, this is one of those where I'm going to step into some deep water here because I'm going to give you my opinion, which is, you know, what this gentleman is asking for. Finding our passion and applying that in meaningful daily work is a very individualized process. And I think God gives us a lot of freedom to make our own choices. Just in the way that we release our kids to make their own choices. Last night, Joanne and I had dinner with Dave and Sharon Ramsey. We were just catching up. You know, kids are growing up and God, we've all got grandbabies and lots of fun things happening. But we were laughing about some of the things that we didn't allow our kids to do when they were in our house. I mean, one of the rules in our house was for, for the boys, no tattoos or earrings as long as you live in this house. Well, if you saw our son Jared a few years ago, you would see uh, a whole lot of earrings and a whole lot of tattoos. So obviously he made his own decision, but we were okay with that. We really were. We were okay with that because he was then free to make his own decisions in those areas. We couldn't micromanage him as an adult. In the freedom that we have, we get to make a lot of choices. See, I don't think God is like a mom or dad who pulls your hand back from the stove when you're three years old. God doesn't slap your hand if you're 50 pounds overweight and you reach for that third piece of pie. We get to make our own choices. So when you say your dreams went nowhere, I'm not sure why. I mean, did you spend 10,000 hours practicing and preparing? I mean, God may give us the seed of a talent, but then it has to be nurtured and developed. Did you really have the talent to be a pilot or musician? I mean, if I have a dream of playing in the NBA and that doesn't happen, did God block that dream? No, I didn't really have the talent for that to be realistic. So when we talk about reaching our dreams, we still have to look for that combination of passion, talent, and an economic model. And I talk about that a lot in Wisdom Meets Passion, my latest book. Passion, talent, economic model. Now that may sound harsh, but I believe God allows us to be in a place of demise and little hope if we continue to choose that for ourselves. He doesn't put us there or keep us there. He just allows us to choose. So whatever you believe in terms of your theological framework I don't believe in a God that moves us around like puppets. So if I'm living with little hope and a sense of demise, and incidentally, that word, you know, he says in a place of demise, I mean, demise means death, dying, passing, loss of life, decease, 
expiring. I mean, all those negative, that is not a pretty picture at all to be living and yet feel like you're in a place of demise. But with all that you've been through, I still think you can choose a different future. I don't think God blocks that. But I don't think that he just magically makes things appear either. I think often our prayers and believing God for our future get clouded by, really, I think there's three things. Unrealistic sense of talent. Unrealistic sense of time. Unrealistic sense of entitlement. That meaning, if I think I'm going to be the next Kenny Chesney, I may not have the talent to do that. It's not just a matter of wanting, hoping, wishing, dreaming. We have to look at what does our talent position us for. Unrealistic sense of time. I mean, we're so impatient in our culture. I mean, if, if we think God opened a door for us, then it ought to be there full blown. Money in the bank, crowd screaming on day two. Well, it just doesn't work that way. I, and I don't care how you frame it. If you think it's God's will, God gave you the passion, the desire, and the talent. It still takes time to have anything meaningful from that. So that unrealistic sense of time. And then that unrealistic sense of entitlement. Boy, I see that just creeping into all kinds of conversations. If it's with parents, okay, parents owe me. You know, we think we ought to have a silver spoon in our mouth at all times. And if it's not the parents, then by golly, the government owes me. The company owes me. Somebody owes me. Somebody ought to make this easy. If I get accepted to the Juilliard School of Art, somebody better make that possible for me. Well, why? Who, who owes us anything? Why should we be entitled to some of the things that we think we're entitled to. I think it's been a very destructive force and we've created generations of people where we've led them to believe they are entitled to things. The, some of the, the government programs have taught people and succeeding generations to expect that, yes, they're going to have a place to live at no cost. They're going to have medical coverage at no cost. They're going to have food at no cost. Why would that be true? Why would that be true for generation after generation? What gives us a sense of that kind of entitlement? And I think that can cloud our picture of what we expect from God. We expect God to be the same kind of you know, Santa Claus in the sky. Well, God just gives us a lot of freedom. I think we can choose a different future. Well, let me move on. I better, better move on from that. I'm sure I've offended enough people already. David says... My wife and I are hoping to adopt two children from Africa next year. And we've been asked by several people if we're going to fundraise. We tell them we don't know. We will be able to pay for the expenses in cash or finish paying within a year of bringing our children home. And it seems strange to ask for money when we're going to adopt the children either way. Is this just my pride getting in the way or is it greedy of me to raise funds through appeals? We will owe about 45000 up front. Eventually, we'll get 25000 back from the federal government, and we earn about 100000 a year. Thanks for your wisdom. 
listen to your podcast every week. Well, David, thanks for your question and for your thoughtfulness in this. This is one of those areas, again, where sometimes people think, well, we're going to adopt. So it's it's something godly, humanitarian. It's ministry to save another child. And so people ought to give us money to make that possible. Really? I mean, can it be done? Yeah, I see it done all the time. I mean, we get letters all the time. We've been called, God has called us to adopt a child. Well, what if God just called you to have another biological child? I mean, would it be right then to just ask your neighbors, friends, and family? Boy, you know, we suspect it may require a cesarean. It's going to be $20,000. Will you help give us money so we can have this baby? Well, that would seem a little odd. And I think asking for money to adopt a child is just a little bit of extension from that. I don't think it's in a different category. I think it's a decision that you make as a family. If you make a decision as a family to do so and you have the funds to do that, fantastic. It's a very worthy and honorable thing to do. Do I think it's justified to ask other people to donate money so that you can adopt a child? Well, personally, I really think that's a stretch. I think it's a stretch. Well, here, here's another stretch. Joanne and I are going to Africa in November. Now, we have a son daughter-in-law, grandbaby who live there. So obviously we're going to see them. But I'm also going to speak some while I'm there. I mean, we're going to make ourselves available and you know, probably speak at some local churches there. I've already been contacted by some people asking me if I would do that. So it'd be very easy to couch that trip as a ministry trip. God is calling us to go to Africa. Will you donate money Let's say it's going to cost, you know, $5,000. We'll use a round figure, $5,000 to go. Will you donate money? Now, would it be reasonable for me to send out a letter to our audience and tell them that God has called us to go to Africa and we're looking for donations? Could we raise some money doing that? Well, frankly, I'm, I'm sure that we could. I mean, we have lots of connections. I'm sure that we could. Will I be doing that? Not in a million years. I just don't see that as a reasonable connection to go in that direction. Again, for for your question, no, I don't think it's reasonable. When you make $100,000 a year, you know you can cover the cost. You've chosen to do it. You've made that decision. Make it happen. Just as if you would decide to go on a family vacation or some other family experience. Well, Chantel ask. Chantel is from uh, British Columbia, Salt Spring Island, British Columbia. And she says, having just written my first book, Can I Be Me Without Losing You? Is that a great title or what? Can I Be Me Without Losing You? (laughs) I love that title. I'm passionate to share what I learned, but the trouble is the publishers don't do much marketing. Apparently it's 5% writing and then 90% 95% marketing. Do you have any hot tips for me to market? Actually, you just gave me one. I could do just like you're doing a podcast with questions, answer on consciousness within our relationships. What does that mean? Learning to speak one's truth, but with compassion for your partner. Any help would be fantastic. I've just signed up as a newbie. Love, love, love your focus and work. Just ordered your books and I launched my consciousness coaching biz. So I want to do your mastery coaching program. Okay, cool. Well, you've you've entered the world of being an author, and it comes as a surprise to many that you're right. It's 5 or 10% writing the book, and then the 90 to 95% is marketing. 
promoting. We love going to book launches. We went to one recently. Jeff Goins launched his book, The In-Between, and we went to his book launch. They had, you know, beautiful hors d'oeuvres, live music. Jeff read little passages, and then based on a passage where he read about his wife wanting to have pancakes every morning during her very difficult pregnancy, then we took a break, and guess what? There was a pancake bar. So we just heard about pancakes, so we all ate pancakes. Then there was another section, and we all ate ice cream. I mean, it was just a fun event to engage us in the content in his book. And people can do exciting, extraordinary things like that. Joanne's getting ready to release her new book on Be Your Finest Art, and we're having fun coming up with all kinds of things that we're going to do as part of that book release. We have, I think, three book releases scheduled for here at the Sanctuary in the next month or so. Different people that are releasing books. And they're going to do it here, and we encourage them to be creative in the things that they do. Now, I'm going to link in the podcast notes, Chantel, to 48 Marketing Tips. That's what I give to authors like you. There are 48 things you can do in there to promote yourself and your book. You don't have to do all 48, but you ought to be able to find five or six in there that you can do, have a lot of fun with, and to rocket your own success. So look in the podcast notes, 48 Marketing Tips for Promoting Your Book. Scott says, Dan, I've listened to your podcast for a year and a half. I'd like to thank you for your book, how you've connected me with shows like Entrepreneur on Fire. I heard about you from Entree Leadership Podcast. Now, Entrepreneur on Fire, of course, is John Lee Dumas. I was just on there again, and Entree Leadership is Dave Ramsey's podcast, hosted by um, Chris Hogan at this point. So Scott says, a year ago, I had a job I absolutely hated. Your book encouraged me to put a plan together to quit my $50,000 a year job and go into car sales. Last week, I took a job selling Hondas. I would like your advice and some books to read on car sales. I've read all of Ziegler's books. I appreciate that you chose years ago to find work you love. Your choices in life have impacted me through your material. Well, thanks so much for your uh, question, Scott. You know I'm a car guy. I love cars. I love buying cars. I love selling cars. I just enjoy the process. If you've read Zig's books, then you've read what I consider probably the best book on selling, that being Secrets of Closing the Sale. I also recommend Brian Tracy, The Psychology of Selling. But here, let me put you on a track here. Have you ever heard of Joe Girard? Joe Girard is in the Guinness Book of Records as the world's greatest salesman. Now, Joe started, let me go to my notes here. Joe Girard sold Chevys in Chicago. Now, he sold for 12 straight years. He sold more new retail cars and trucks than any other salesperson, more than any other individuals in history. I mean, more more as an individual than most dealers sell in total. Now, I'll tell you some of his stats here in a minute. But Joe has written a bunch of books. Um, He has written How to Sell Anything to Anybody, Joe Girard. Now, Joe's an old guy at this point. I mean, Joe would be about 85 years old at this point. Uh, I think he's still around, still speaks, just a delightful guy. But How to Sell Anything to Anybody... Joe Girard's 13 Essential Rules of Selling, How to Be a Top Achiever and Lead a Great Life, How to Close Every Sale, How to Sell Yourself, Mastering Your Way to the Top, 
I mean, goes on and on. But but here's the deal. He was a he had a really rough childhood. Started working as a shoe shine boy, and then he worked as a newsboy for the Detroit Free Press at the age of nine. He was working as a newsboy, then as a dishwasher, delivery boy, stove assembler, home building contractor. In 1963, the then 35-year-old walked into a Detroit car dealership and begged for a job as a salesman. Now, the, the manager was pretty skeptical. The guy had no experience. It was right in the middle of winter in Chicago, very tough selling time. But Joe was so persistent that the the manager took him on. He sold a car on his very first day. He actually, uh, boy, I, I mean, I, I love this story. He he said he would just take a desk, like at the back of the warehouse. He didn't even need a desk in the showroom, and he'd do nothing but just phone call people. So he wouldn't take anybody else's walk-in traffic. So he really made it pretty, uh, pretty much a no-brainer for the manager to get, at least give him a chance. And he sold a car on his very first day. By the second month. It was so good, some of the other salespeople complained about him and got him fired. So his next job was at Marolas Chevrolet in East Point, Michigan, just out of Detroit, which he held until his retirement in 1977. And it was there that he created some of the records that are in the Guinness Book of Records today. He sold, in his 15-year career, he sold 13,001 new cars, brand new cars. He averaged six new cars a day in that 15-year period. The most sales he had in any, any one day was 18. Can you imagine selling 18 Hondas in one day? The most retail sales he had in one month was 174. The most new retail sales he had in one year was 1,425. Now, if you break that down with 50 weeks of five days selling, I mean, that's only 250 days. I mean, that's an amazing average. He averaged, well, he averaged six new retail cars a day during that period of time. Now, you want to know how he did that? How did he explode his success? This is what I love about selling. This is what I love about doing anything with excellence. It's not rocket science. It's just do something. Just like if you want to be a best-selling author, figure out a couple things that you do that other authors are not doing, and it'll put you on the map. You, you may figure out that you can sell your book to IBM where they buy 50,000 copies of your book. Rather than find 50,000 people who buy one at a time, that's using a principle called Occam's Razor, O-C-C-A-M, Occam's Razor. It means find the simplest solution. So instead of finding 50,000 people to buy one copy, how could you find an organization that buys 50,000 copies? And there have been a lot of authors that have done that, especially sales where they write a book on leadership and they get Amway to buy 150,000 copies and it has Amway on the front cover. Nothing shabby about that. There are a lot of authors whose names you'll never know who have made millions of dollars because they work in those specialty markets just like that. Anyway, here's what Joe did. Here's what Joe Girard did. He sent greeting cards. That was his key. He sent greeting cards. Employing two assistants that he paid for himself, he sent out nearly 13,000 greeting cards a month 
to his customers. He would celebrate everything from Halloween to Groundhog Day. Um, Everybody got cards on Valentine's Day, major holidays, their anniversaries, birthdays. They would get a card. That's all he did. He would send a card every month to his customers. So he sent out almost 13,000 near the end every month that he would send out. And every card had the same message when you open it up. Now, he would have an artist draw draw up 12 different cards. So they would get a different card each month. So it would be something, you know, artistic. But on the inside, all it said, the same message, I like you. That's what he did. And he put himself in the Guinness Book of Records for selling more cars than any other salesman in history. So this is interesting because he didn't know more about Chevys than other car salesmen. He didn't know more about miles per gallon. He just sent his customers cards and his customers felt like they were part of his family. Guess who they recommended? Time after time after time. He had a little reward system for his customers. When somebody would came in and say, hey, Dan Meller sent you in here. He'd send Dan a special card with a little gift in there. That's what he did. Boy, you can do the same thing. I mean, sell Hondas, rock and roll, selling Hondas. I mean, you can have success, Scott, that most people dream about in a very common market with a very common product, Hondas. A lot of people selling Hondas. You can't sell them cheaper than anybody else. See, that's what everybody wants to do. They want to be able to sell it cheaper. Well, you sell it cheaper you sell it cheap enough, ultimately the dealership doesn't make any money and folds and you don't have any job and don't make any commission. That's not a way to go. You don't want to be cheapest. You just want to be extraordinary. You want to be remarkable. That's the way you put yourself in the top, whether it's selling Hondas, books, art, or anything else. Well, let me take a breath after that one. Love that question. Love it, love it, love it. Well, if you got a question, you can go to 48days.com. Just click on the podcast link. You'll see an opportunity there to submit your question. Be delighted to consider that for an upcoming podcast. Got lots of those come in. They go into a special file because it comes in to askdan at 48days.com. So just uh, fire away. Now, I get a lot of other things in there and some of the things we... We answer privately if they're painful questions, but I love sorting through for the kind of things we can all have fun with here and go through as podcast questions. Well, Mark from Texas said, I'm a husband, father of four children. My wife is in school for another two years, and we are desperate to start making more money in the least amount of time possible if we want to keep our house. My question is, should I focus on a job search or making money on my own? My wife is adamant about me focusing on a job search. However, I feel like I'm stuck in my career. I've been a machine operator at a food processing plant for five years. I'm now at the top of the pay scale for my position. And if I wanted to go into another department in my company, I would have to take a pay cut. And if I looked outside of the company, I don't feel like I have the skills or experience to get a job making more than what I am now. Well... Mark, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay on your side in this conversation. I think you need to explore options for making money on the side. In addition, right now, in addition to what you make in your job, if this is accurate, what you're saying, you're at the top of the pay scale for your most marketable skills, 
then looking for another job could do nothing to improve your financial picture. It could just give you a horizontal move and you're still at the same place. But I had to look at things that you already know about and enjoy. If you're a machine operator, you probably have all kinds of hobbies and interests that may revolve around that. Look at things you already know and enjoy and then build on those. Now, I'm going to put a, a link in the podcast notes where you can open up and get at no charge the, my 48 low or no cost business ideas. There are things in there about, you know, how I've installed two tractor tires in our yard, you know, standing up, buried about a third down, painted them, put wood chips around them. It's a beautiful play area for the grandkids. Cost zero. You could do that where you put those in for other people. I've got lots and lots of ideas in there. Just simple things like that, that people have taken and built on to develop their own little side businesses. Yeah, I think you're better off to go in that direction. With what you're describing, I think just doing another job search is going to be a challenging thing. I mean, we have to be realistic about that. If you're a machine operator, there are going to be certain ranges of salary income compensation for you that are going to be reasonable. You can't just say, well, my, I need to make $80,000 a year. So I've got to find a job where I can make $80,000 a year. No, if the average pay scale for somebody as a machine operator is $45,000 a year, let's say it ranges from 35 to 50. That's where you're going to be. You can't artificially force that to go higher just because you need it or want it. So do something more creative and you can, in fact, open up the door for extraordinary income. Now, here's a question from Frank. Now, last week, Frank asked me, you know, how to explain the differences in my philosophy, you know, with my buddy, Dave Ramsey about business and finances. And I went through and I said, you know, really, we're, we're very much on the same page. I wasn't quite sure what precipitated the question. Well, here's what prompted that question. He said, really? He said, here's why I asked the question. I consider you, Dave Ramsey and Warren Buffett, virtual mentors. Warren Buffett's mentor was Bill Graham, and he spoke of how their investment strategies were different, both very successful. I want to have a business similar to yours with no employees. Dave is structured differently. Yeah, that is a major difference. Sharon asked me last night as we were eating dinner, we were talking about all the things that we're doing and new things that we're you know, launching. She says, how many employees do you have at this point? And I said, zero. I don't have any employees. Now, we have a whole lot of people whose skills complement my own. At the end of the year, we have a long list of people who get 1099s. That means they're independent contractors. I think we have, you know, we have between 30 and 35 people like that. Dave has a lot of employees. Yeah, he's structured his business very differently. I outsource everything so that I can keep mine very streamlined, clean, where it's just me, by myself, no employees, no committee meetings, None of that. It's just different. So, yeah, we've we've just elected to do it differently. Now, a lot of that just is because Dave and I are wired differently. Dave is very much a gregarious, outgoing, people kind of person, loves being in a room with lots of energy, a lot of people, loves being on stage in front of people. I'm really much different than that. I, I really tend to be much more introverted. I love solitude. I'm energized by solitude. So I structure it so that 95% of my week is in solitude. And then the 5% is where I have those very strategic connections with groups of people and people and live events, speaking things. I mean, I do that as part of my business, but it's not a large part. 
So yeah, there is a difference there. You can just decide. You can decide what fits you best and how you can you know, have fun doing it. Build it in a way that fits you well. Well, Ronnie from Australia says, Dan, thanks so much for your ministry. I can't wait for your weekly podcast. Some guidance would be greatly appreciated. Now, this is a this is a very interesting, unusual kind of situation he's proposing here. Ronnie says, I come from Zimbabwe and my family has been distributed among the nations. I figured that if the despot running and destroying Zimbabwe was responsible for the miles that separate us, that I'd figure out a way to make him finance airfares for a reunion. Having a warped sense of humor and a talent for drawing, I decided to use this and in a lighthearted manner poke fun at Mugabe with my drawings. Now, he's the president of Zimbabwe. I've created a blog. My idea is to build a following by releasing new drawings weekly and once I have done a decent once I have a decent following and a and a heap of humorous drawings to release it electronically in hard copy and of course sell it and make money. However, despite much hard work and us my attempts to expose my site, I'm not getting much traction. Okay. <laughs> now so Ronnie, you live in Australia. You're from Zimbabwe, that's where your family's from, and you're poking fun at the a dictator, you know, who is an elected president, but I, I recognize your angst and pain about what he's doing to that country. He's been sanctioned heavily by England and the United States and lots of other countries, and people know that he's destroying the economy in Zimbabwe and so on. I love your spirit. I really do. I love the idea of what you're doing, but I'm really not very confident in your methods. I mean, people who make fun of despot leaders uh, in African countries tend to have very short lives. I mean, your audience has to be people who know and care about Zimbabwe. Are you focusing your marketing efforts to them? But the challenging part is if people live in that country, leaders like this tend to monitor emails and phone calls. I mean, I have a son who lives, he's lived in various countries in Africa and he's very careful about what information he transmits whether it's on a cell phone or whether it's through email now there are some other ways of communicating that are a little more strategic to protect information but the common ways that people would connect with your blog are very easily trackable can you really get enough people to take that risk to follow and support your revolutionary humor? Now, I, I really am, uh, and as much again as I, I love your cute cartoons, I did go there and look, I love the spirit of what you're doing. I'm not sure you can make this work as a business venture. I'm not sure you can attract a big enough following to buy your book and support what you're doing. I mean, if you're, if you're the next Scott Adams and you're a cartoonist and you're doing the Dilbert cartoons and you're making fun of corporate America, you're going to have millions of people who are potential customers of yours. And that's proven to be true. You know, Scott's extremely successful because what he says rings so true. It's sarcastic. It pokes fun and major corporations often by name. But there's really not 
any danger in this country. Now, there may be some backlash, but there's really not uh, not putting your life in danger in the same way that is potentially true for what you're proposing. So I think sometimes this falls into the category. You know, sometimes there are great ideas that just don't work. Boy, I, I sound like a downer. Again, I, I love your question, but I just don't see any reasonable way to really have that carry through and have it work. To uh, I, I love the the idea of having this goofball, you know, finance by making fun of it and having that actually finance a reunion trip for your family. I, I love all of that, but I really question whether or not you're going to be able to create a financial model from that. Again, we got to have those three legs to the stool. Remember, ta- passion, talent and an economic model. You obviously have the passion, you have the talent, but I don't think you can create an economic model that'll make this fly. Benjamin from Xenia, Ohio. Xenia, Ohio. Joanne, my wife, worked there just prior to us getting married. She was 17, worked in a jewelry store, rich jewelry, right in the corner in Xenia, Ohio, which then a couple years later was destroyed with a tornado that came through, leveled that part of the town. It had to rebuild, so we very much know Xenia. Benjamin says, Dan, I've been working, producing a six-month personal growth plan for Cherub Coaching Solutions with Coach Elmer Kuerben. Each week of the course is several challenging questions and action steps. When you read a good book and come to the questions and action steps at the end of the chapter, what is your process to apply the information gained? What advice can you give me as I write the growth plan to ensure the most engagement? I find it too easy to skip over the questions and avoid the difficult thinking. Bingo. Benjamin, I think you I think you identified something that is really true. So you have this workbook and you have action steps and then fill in the blanks for what you're going to do, what the reader's going to do. Well, you can give people information in various ways, but then you have to let them choose how to absorb or act on that. You can't force people to get the information in any particular way. Now, how do I do it? I read tons of books where when it comes to the end of the chapter, it asks you those hard questions, fill in the blanks. You know what I'm doing? I'm reading the next chapter. I mean, I do that. I don't stop and go through those like a workbook. It would be very rare for me to go back and fill in the blanks in a book. I can't remember a time when I've done that. Now, at the same time, I create books where that is very much part of the process. So 48 days, the end of the chapter, there are questions. Wisdom meets passion. At the end of the chapter, there are questions. I created a field manual to go with wisdom meets passion that we, you know, send out to thousands and thousands of people and they love it. I mean, I've taken a, a class, university class through that process. You know, they were totally engaged in that. It's just not the way that I gather the information and utilize it. So the issue is not how to force everybody to do it. The issue is make it available in multiple ways for people and let them choose. That's the best way. That's where you'll get the best engagement. Don't make it appear like you're trying to force feed them in a particular way or require them to do a particular process before they can move on with your material. Well, Clay from Atlanta says, and when I was a teenager, a couple decades ago, I purchased a book from a small company that had a cult-like following. I won't get too specific as I don't want my ideas stolen, 
But basically, this company's books are selling for high dollar on the secondhand market now because they're no longer available. New. The company went out of business about 10 years ago. I would like to obtain the rights to the company's books and sell them on Apple and Amazon's platforms as e-books. How do I go about this? I cannot locate any information about the company online anymore, so I have no idea who even owns the rights now. Well, it is, again, a very in, uh, appealing process. There are thousands and thousands of books out there that are no longer in print that we know have real value. The information is great. They were just never marketed well or the company, as you say, or publisher is no longer in business, whatever. You have to start with the publisher in this case. I mean, it ought to indicate that right inside the front flap of the book. You ought to see who the publisher is. Find the publisher. You know, I mean, even though the books are no longer available, that does not mean they don't have an active copyright. I mean, copyrights for things that are written since 1923 essentially survive the author's death by 70 years. So the copyrights on my books will be active 70 years after I die. That's so, so we got a lot of books out here that are great books that are no longer in print that may have been done back in the 1930s, but they're still under a copyright protection because of the way the laws are written. So you have to start with the publisher and even if the company went out of business only 10 years ago, chances are very high that the material is still covered under copyright laws. So start with the publisher, then the author. I mean, just keep digging. Now, you can go to search information that's in the public domain, but chances are low that this just automatically reverted to the public domain. I mean, you can go to Gutenberg Press, and if you just Google books in the public domain you'll get some great sites there to help your research but chances are really not very high that something that was around this recent is in the public domain can you however get rights to it well yeah you can negotiate that i mean i have books where i've purchased the rights from the publisher where you know that were that were written 15 20 years ago where i just simply purchased the rights to that book along with the author royalty rights and the whole thing. I mean, I've done that. It's not complicated to do. You may be able to negotiate rights for some of these books with a very low investment or with nothing. If they agree to let you do that, you may negotiate something where you say you're going to republish them and you give them a royalty rather than purchasing the rights outright. You have a royalty agreement where they get 15% of the net proceeds on the back end. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to approach it. And you, you can certainly do that. Well, this comes from, well, okay, this is a no name. Don't use my name, please. All right. And the writer says, the listener says, I've been a lawyer at a firm for 11 years. For two years, I've considered leaving. We are growing more bureaucratic, and I know there's a better way to build it on my own with project billing, blogs, podcast. So he's going to take his legal acumen but he's going to position it differently than what's done in a traditional firm. Move out on his own. Sounds awesome. My wife and I have budgeted and are ready and are as ready as we will be. I gave myself an August deadline. Now that I'm here, should I wait for a potential year end bonus? My dilemma, go now and get started or be safe. Wait for the bonus. My bonus is not guaranteed. It's up to a committee. I've always been treated fairly, but it means four months to wait. If the boss wasn't expected, I'd start my new adventure now. I'm always 
I'm excitedly nervous about going out on my own and confident my clients will follow. Don't just don't want to be dumb about timing. Do I wait for the bonus or jump? Well, you're at this place, Mr. Anonymous. You're at this place, anonymous attorney, where you're asking yourself, okay, I've got a, I've got a response for you. Should you go or should you wait Take for the bonus? Oh, oh no. Well, there's a there's an alternative. I know this isn't your thinking. You know, when you get to the point where you have an exit plan, I know that runs through your mind. I deal with people every day who say, oh, geez, I got my exit plan in place. But, you know, do I really have to give a month's notice, two weeks? Can I just walk out the door? Well, it usually doesn't work to your favor to do that. I know that's not what you're proposing here. But here's what I would recommend. Now, you have given no indication about how much bonus this is. I mean, if the bonus is $50, then obviously... Just bolt. Don't worry about it. If it's $50,000, that's a different story. So here's kind of some guidelines to frame it. And I've been through this a lot with people. If the bonus is more than 10% of your annual income, then I'd probably wait to get it. I mean, you can decide either way, but, and I commend you on having created a plan and being ready to go. But when you think about it, I mean, four months is a blink of an eye, especially when you've been there 11 years already. I mean, that'll go by, boom, just like that. You can continue to plan and anticipate making productive use of those four months while being paid and securing your bonus. So let's just say that you're making $100,000. So in another four months, you're going to make another 25. And let's say that your bonus is another 25. So it's going to be a swing of $50,000 to stay for the four months rather than leaving now. Yeah, I'd do that. I'd stay. I mean, it's, it's not like you have a hard, fast starting time with the way that you are structuring, structuring what you're moving into. You can move into it gently. You can start doing blogs and podcasts even now. So you can start moving into that and creating that even in the next four months. But again, that's going to go by so quickly. So if there's a reasonable bonus anticipated, yeah, I'd stick around and take advantage of that. Now, you know, this is coming from me. I mean, this is Mr. You know, Mr. Ready, aim, Ready Fire Aim here. I, I'm one to pull the trigger and then figure out you know, what I was pointing at, but in this case, yeah, even I would uh, just slow down, take it easy and have a great exit with the bonus in hand. Well, you know, if you're not involved in the 48days.net community, you know, check that out. I mean, there's no membership fee or anything, but it's just a place where we see more and more people having success stories. There's a lot of things coming out of there that I really absolutely love watching and being part of, just having kind of created the umbrella for that to take place. So a lot of cool things happening there. Check out our live events. Everything we've got for the rest of the year is sold out, so I can't really promote something unless you go and look at things that are going to be available next year but now's the time to do that because they all fill up quickly having lots of fun here hope you're enjoying this last 
quarter of the year, the last four months, whatever it is for you. Hope you're enjoying it, being part of this group where we are finding or creating work that is meaningful, fulfilling, productive, and profitable. Don't settle for less.